0: Swordplay, Alex. Earlier this week was your birthday. Happy birthday, man! How did it? Uh, how did go? How did? It, how did you celebrate? Well, Nick, I pulled out my Septuagint, ooh, and I
1: opened up the First Chronicles, ooh, yeah. and I exegeted like it's AD ninety nine.
0: <laughs> so allegorically, right? That's what you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <clears throat> man, you guys get crazy with the cheese, was over there, don't you? That's right. Uh. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist
1: for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota.
0: On this episode of Swordplay,
1: Joel chapter 1. That's right. Joel chapter 1. Let that be a reminder to our audience. Go back and read Joel chapter 1. Probably ought to read the whole book. It's only three chapters. Come back, listen to the episode as we dig in question by question. And Nick, as always, when we start a book, we want to get the background. So, uh, who wrote the book of Joel, and when was it written?
0: Yeah, so, well, 1 verse 1, a word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. But the only thing we know about Joel is, one, his daddy was Pethuel, and two, his name means Yah is God. Anything else? Um... It's kind of conjecture, but um, yeah, not a lot of info about the author himself. As to when he wrote, well, uh, well, that's not as cut and dry as uh, Joel being the author. Dates for the composition of the book range from all the way back to the 10th century and then all the way up to the 5th century B.C., According to Robert Chisholm in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, there are three options for dating the book. There's the early pre-exilic date, which would be approximately ninth 9th century. There's the late exilic date, which would be somewhere around 597 to 587 BC. And then there's the post-exilic date, which would be sometime after 516 BC, when the temple had been rebuilt and the temple does kind of play a factor in this because it's mentioned and they're worshipping in the temple and things like that And so mm-hmm. um, so let's walk through those briefly the early pre-exilic date um, the case for this for a 9th century B.C. date is based upon the book's position in the canon it's between Hosea and Amos and they both ministered in the 9th century eh, I don't know if we want to go on yeah. book placement as dating, but that's <laughs> that's one of the arguments you run into. Uh, also, um, identifying Egypt, Tyre, Sidon, Philistia, Edom as the enemies; those are all of those are pre-exilic enemies, as opposed to like Assyria and Babylon, which they came along later. Problem with that is even in exilic writings, um, like Ezekiel and uh, guys like that, you still have. Egypt, Tyre, Sidon, you have uh, you have prophecies against them. So mm, there's that. Let's talk about the late pre-exilic date. So like right before the nation goes into captivity in Babylon. You have reference to a scattering of the people in 3 verse 2. You also have, as I mentioned, the, the temple references. 1 verse 9, also verse 13. That wasn't destroyed until 586 B.C. And so those, this prophecy here in the early part anticipates the coming judgment upon Jerusalem. Uh, so there's that. Um, and then there's the post-exilic date. And again, the temple comes into play here because all the temple talk in Joel now refers to the second temple. And uh, there's a governing body of elders instead of a king, like you had before the exile. And then there's also, and and this is kind of tenuous, but some say that Joel quotes Ezekiel. For example, Joel 2 verse 3, they say that's uh, a quotation of Ezekiel 36 verse 35. Eh, I don't know. Anyway, all that points to kind of a later date. So, what can be said about the date? Well, I think the best we can say is it's hard to be dogmatic on a date. Um, There are problems with all three options. Nevertheless, you still get guys like Homer Haley in his commentary on the Minor Prophets. He stamps the very precise date of 832 B.C. on the Book of Joel. (laughs) I saw that. That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, guys like Chisholm, uh, he puts the date of the book in the post-exilic period. He interprets the book then as kind of a polemic against the nations. They will be judged for what they did to Yah's people. And so there you go. That's a bunch of information about the date. What say you, Alex? Yeah, um, so just to dovetail on
1: some of what you said, yeah, you're right, Joel means uh, Yah is God or Yahweh is God. Um, I wonder if the idea is more specifically Yahweh is our God, Mm. Seeing as how that's the most repeated phrase in the book, Yahweh, your God, something to that um, phrasing. We'll see more of that later in the podcast. The meaning of his father's name, I thought this was interesting, Pethuel, it's just uncertain. The best Mm. guesses are is that it means something like um, a youth belonging to God. Um, I thought that was interesting. If you're reading your Old Testament pseudepigrapha books, like the uh, Lives of the Prophets, all you'll get for Joel is a short little verse about how he's from the tribe of Reuben. So, (laughs) yeah, not much known about Joel. Now, for the dates that you listed out, um, pre-, early, pre-exilic, late uh, pre-exilic, post-exilic, I personally would probably take the post-exilic or maybe even like during exile, uh, but probably post-exilic date for some of the reasons you already mentioned, but here's the catch. The events this is how I see the book outlined. The events listed are scattered across a timeline, so chapter one, verse one through twenty that has already occurred. That's spoken of as past. the plagues are upon them. Uh, chapter two verses one through eleven is what would happen if they did not repent. Um, the locust plague would turn into um, a real army of of invading foreigners. Chapter two verses twelve through twenty seven is what would happen if they did repent. uh, God would make up for all that they lost. But even in those verses, I'm going to see, even though it's written as future, I'm actually going to see chapter 2, verses 1-27 through as past. And I think the author knows that. I think the audience knows that. Because I think they know what choice the Israelites actually end up making. They choose not to repent, and therefore they are destroyed by... um, invading armies and they are exiled so chapter 228 then through the rest of the book through 321 those are the promises of restoration which is why i take the book to be written either during exile or post-exile you're not going to talk about promises of restoration unless there is something that needs to be restored any thoughts there nick
0: no that makes sense
1: all right 832, that cracked me up, Homer Haley. (laughs) (laughs) Just nailing it down right there, 832.
0: So precise.
1: Yeah, I know. must have had a dream about it. So, um, Nick, who was Joel written to then? Obviously, these questions build on top of each other, depending on what the previous answer was. But who would you say Joel was written to?
0: Right. Well, verse 2, hear these things, O elders, and hearken all you settlers of the land. So verse 2, Joel lifts his oracle to all the inhabitants of the land who are led by the elders here specifically. They're their leaders. And so kind of assuming that the monarchy has broken down or perhaps even been removed, the people would have been led by these prominent, uh, perhaps older men. Perhaps they had some um, governing experience. Maybe they had some judicial experience. And so Joel, he prophesies and he writes to all the people of judah Uh, what say you alex yeah i think that's right nick that's uh
1: in fact one of the reasons why i see this book as being exilic or post-exilic because that's exactly the situation we see for the jewish captives they maintain leadership during captivity and post-captivity through elders judges priests uh, sometimes a governor um, and later on uh, you know hundreds of years after captivity leading up into the, the time of Jesus. You have various religious political leaders. You see the Sadducees, Pharisees. I think that's why you don't have a king mentioned in chapter 1 or for the first 27 verses of chapter 2. When looking back, if, if what I'm saying is right, if they are actually looking back on past events in a preface to their looking forward to a hope of restoration... There's really no relevance in mentioning the king since they currently have been without a king for some time. Any thoughts there?
0: Makes sense.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm glad you're so agreeable today. (laughs) (laughs) Just wait. (laughs) All right, Nick. Well, we always got to talk about why a book was written. So what is the occasion and purpose of the book?
0: Well, it seems like, they, so you take a step back and look at the book as, at large. <clears throat> it seems like the locusts have come, uh, and, and more are coming, and this army's coming, and so <laughs> we need to repent. Right, and right, that's right. that's the call. Yahweh has mercy upon his people. Um, he will call off the invasion. I think that's, so, so the structure, right, looking at the structure again, from one one to two, what seventeen um, is the first half of the book? Verse eighteen of chapter two is kind of the turning point, and then from two nineteen on is the second chunk of the book. I, I think I read that somewhere. So. So at 2.18, Yahweh has mercy on his people, and then he calls off the invasion. He's going to restore the nation's fortunes. He's going to judge all the nations. And so like any good prophetic book, the purpose is to call the nation back to Yahweh so that he might restore their fortunes and relent from threatened disaster. That's what I see. What do you see? Sure, sure. And I think uh, 2.18...
1: It might be 228 where you sort of see that turning point. Um, So I don't know if that's what you meant is 228 or if you did mean 218.
0: No, I did mean 218. Okay. Let me see here. Uh, Yeah. He will become jealous for his land and have pity on his people. That's... That's a turning point there, right? He's gonna have mercy and now he's things start things start changing after that. And then yeah, you do get the kind of the high point two twenty eight and all that
1: so. uh, Okay, okay. So there would be maybe the first distinction between how you and I are viewing the outline of the book. Because okay. the way I'm viewing it is that um two one through eleven is what happens if they don't repent because of the plagues or the warning shots. And then uh two twelve Is the turning point where he says, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning, rend your heart, not your garments, return to the Lord your God, he's gracious and compassionate. And so, that through uh, verse 27 is what will happen if they do repent, if they do return. But then it seemed to me verse 28 was a sharp, like distinct, like different change in the flow of the book. Verse 28. Uh, through thirty one or thirty two, then all of chapter three seemed like to be a completely like s- distinct, separate thing going on. Um, so there you go, multiple views on the outline. Then I'm glad we I'm glad we took a look at that. I didn't want to be like two ships passing in the night, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, um, from the exilic or post exilic perspective, then, if, um, from what I mentioned earlier, I think the purpose of the book then would be twofold. First. Uh, The way I see it, it would be to remind the Israelites of exactly how they got where they currently are. They got to where they are, either captivity or post-captivity, by not repenting. Even after many warnings, many plagues, and even the promises that God would make up for all that they had lost during the uh, plagues. So that would be the first purpose, is to remind them of that and uh, their own responsibility of that because God said he could make up for it it wasn't a it wasn't a done deal they, they had time to repent uh, second though the purpose would be to give them a future hope of restoration and that's where I see that sharp change of 2.28 and following um, a hope that was still expected by the way during the time of Jesus because if you remember in Acts uh, chapter 1 Peter asked Jesus is it at this time you will restore the kingdom to Israel um well, a few days later, the Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, and Peter quotes Joel two twenty eight as now being fulfilled. This is what Joel spoke of. Um, so, that's the the future aspect of two twenty eight and following. What are your thoughts there, Nick?
0: No, I yeah, I don't have a issue with that. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, there, so I see the I see. 2, 12, to seventeen. Uh, I see that more as the the call. Hey, now you know, uh, return to me. Come back with all your heart, right? Right, right. And then two eighteen. Then, then, if you return, right? And and so we start the we start the return or the the, the restoration. I'm sending you all the stuff that I took away, right? And then yeah, right. there's even. This yet future thing, which looks different even than right, right, what I've been giving you. So. Because
1: in verse 28, it'll come about after this. Right. And so the after this has got to be in reference to verses 1 through 27. And it seems to me that there are two choices in 1 through 27, the choice of not repenting or the choice of repenting. Because if they didn't repent, then verses 18 through 27 that you're looking at, that wouldn't have happened. Uh and we know that from history, they didn't repent, and none of those things happened. They didn't get the all of the the years lost uh, they didn't get that restored because they chose not to come back to Yahweh.
0: Well, unless you're looking at it from a pre-exilic date, which I think that's where I'm going to come from now. oh <laughs> is after the exile, yeah they, he does have pity they do he is merciful, they come back and there's there's some restoration. But there's even yet a future thing coming after that, afterward. I see, I see. We'll, we'll have to dig more into that when we get into chapter
1: two. It'll be interesting. Oh, we will. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's sword play, my friend. That's right. On guard. Um, Nick, why don't you talk to us for a second, what New Testament connections are there in the book of Joel? I mentioned Acts chapter two. You can talk more about that if you want. Well, what else do we have?
0: Uh, so, well, I mean, Acts two is the big one, right? I mean, that's right. we we'll find uh, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, and you have that ex- extended quote there from the end of Joel chapter two that Peter gives on the day of Pentecost. So that's that's a big that's a big one, and yeah, we will do a deep dive on those verses uh, in the next episode. But right there, you got a connection. Um, a lot of mention of the day of the Lord in uh, the book of Joel. Uh, day of Yahweh, and so that, that kind of language, Day of the Lord, is picked up in the New Testament as well, and so there's there's some uh, connection there in terms of, uh, well, it's a day of judgment. It's not a, not a fun day. I found another interesting connection to Revelation chapter 9, verses 7 and 8 in particular about the locusts there. And if it's not a direct quotation, it's a pretty strong allusion about the teeth, our lion's teeth. Right, right. And that's straight from Joel 1, verse 6 there. And then Revelation generally, I've got a big, fat, thick book called uh, Commentary on the New Testament Usage of the Old Testament. And it's Beal and Carlson who are the authors. They... Cool. Huh. That sounds good. Yeah, oh yeah, it is. It's great. They so just a, a quick glance in the um, index of uh, under the listing for Joel, and there's there are a lot of references, at least allusions and echoes and stuff like that in Revelation, right? That harken back to Joel, right? And so, and that's typical. I mean, um, someone has said that. The key to unlocking the 66th book of the Bible, or the other 65, that John the Apostle stands on the rich prophetic heritage that went before him, and so he pulls extensively from prophetic literature in the Old Testament in particular, and Joel is one of those books, and so we shouldn't be surprised to find that uh, there are several echoes and allusions from Joel in Revelation. Sure. No, I, I believe that. Um,
1: unless you're reading your Septuagint, then it might be 70-something books. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Nick. Well, um, New Testament connections there to look out for. We'll keep making those connections as we go along. Verse 3 now, we want to get into the text. Um, Joel's writing this, and he says, this is something that needs to be told to multiple generations. Um, why are they commanded to tell multiple generations? I think specifically... It says, tell your sons about it. Let your sons tell their sons, and their sons the next generation. What do you you think that's about, Nick?
0: So not just in Joel. You see this in the Psalms as well. Um, And I think it's a common theme in your Old Testament, that God is always concerned about the next generation. You see in the book of Judges, for example, how in one generation, there was a generation that grew up and they knew nothing, and that was devastating for the nation. Uh, Cycle after cycle of sin and restoration and sin and salvation, and it was because they didn't know the Lord. And so uh, I think that's, I think generally that's true. Here specifically, as it's talking about, you know, the. The locust plague and and the bad stuff, the judgments. You need you need to tell the next generation, lest they become subject to the same kind of judgment. It's what they were supposed to do with the law, Deuteronomy. It's uh, uh, in in passing down and informing their children, talking about it here and there on the way at home and all that. And uh, because if you don't, if you neglect the covenant. There are going to be bad things. There are going to be curses that come, and locust plague is one of those things. So God's always concerned about the next generation, and I think that's what's going on here in Joel 1. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. The
1: next generation needs to uh, hear and listen to uh, the previous generation when it comes to God's law, who is Yahweh. And when you talk about three or four generations at any given time, like we have here, um, that really has the idea of judgment being at hand you see the idea of judgment upon a nation in the old testament was that the suffering of that nation it would fall upon the total living community and since there are generally three or four living generations at any given time when judgment comes or warning of a judgment is coming it is said to come upon the fathers and children to the third or fourth generation it's the total living community and that's the idea behind uh, the second commandment in law of Moses which prohibits idolatry because the results will be God visiting the iniquity upon the third or fourth generation Um, likewise you see that third or fourth generation here in Joel chapter 1 verse 3 it says uh, you tell your sons that's you're the first generation your sons are the second generation you tell your sons about it let your sons tell their sons that'd be third generation and their sons tell the next generation that's fourth generation So typically you're going to have alive at any time uh, grandpa and maybe Mm great-grandpa. So that's why it says third or fourth generation. That's the total living community. And that's the uh, way information needs to travel down is through the total living community. Great-grandpa needs to make sure that he did teach his son because grandpa needs to teach his son because dad needs to teach his son. And so this is the, uh, the total living community in, in my view of that, as opposed to the other view, which is um, like some kind of magical curse that gets passed down through your spiritual DNA. I don't, I don't think that's what's at, at hand at all <laughs> here or in the second commandment, by the way. Will, Nick, any thoughts on that at all?
0: No, that's, that's a good uh, uh, turn it forward to the, the impending judgment, the upcoming judgment. In the right, of that. right. Here. Verse four, Nick. Why are there
1: so many types of locusts described? Are these real locusts? I mean, why can't you just say
0: locust? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, I mean, even if these are locusts, right? Because uh, there's a different way of, of reading this, and I'll talk about that more in a moment. But if these are real locusts, then the naming of these—I think there's four types of locusts is intended to communicate the severity of the ecological as well as economic disaster that is coming upon the people Um, so locust after locust after locust locust, that's it's just going to be awful terrible very bad no good however so here's the other side of this in chapter two there is mention of a coming invading army force and in chapter 1 then what could be happening is it could be figurative poetic language prophetic language that is used to describe this invading army uh, these invading forces that are coming against Judah they are like locusts and there are literary parallels in chapters 1 and 2 which would indicate that an army is envisioned in both chapters and some interpret the locusts here in that way but at the same time it could be that's the uh, ecological disaster that is wrought by this army of locusts. And that's just that's just prologue to the impending military campaign from a foreign army that's coming, Chapter 2. So a um, so couple, a few different ways of looking at it. What, what do you think? Yeah, I take that
1: last view. You mentioned the both and. The locusts are real here in Chapter 1, but they're also foreshadowing what would happen via an invading army if they chose not to repent and that's what we see in chapter 2 verses 1-11 through this process was laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that's the uh, cursings of the law so should they break covenant here's the list of cursings and plagues that God will send upon them and uh, there too it, it says in Deuteronomy 28 that plagues like locusts would come in increasing measure until they either repent or go into full-blown captivity. Uh, some have suggested that these different locusts, uh, these four different types of locusts, are the different molting stages of the locust life cycle. Right. Um, that's certainly possible. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Septuagint also includes a couple other things in this verse. It says that destruction also happens because of the caterpillar and because of mildew. Right. So... um yeah, so I don't know about the molten locust life cycle, but I do think it was probably real locusts because that's what you see laid out in Deuteronomy 28. You get the warning shots first, and then the real deal comes at the end with the invading army that wipes you out, takes you into captivity. Uh, Nick, mm-hmm. verse 5, right? we have uh, a group of drunkards who are being told to weep and to
0: mourn. Who, who are these drunkards? Why would they weep? So, and again, it's prophecy. So do we take a literal track or do we take a more figurative track? A literal reading of this verse would have literal drunkards weeping over the fact that, um, well, there's no wine <laughs> there's, because there's no booze. vines. That's right. There's no, <laughs> no vineyards. Those have been devoted to destruction. You see that in verse 7 uh, Laid waste my vine. So, an alternative reading would be to view the drunkards as all the inhabitants of the land who are drinking the cup of the wrath of God, a common figure in the Old Testament where a nation has their cup that they're uh, pouring sin and iniquity and all kinds of stuff in. And once it fills up and overflows, that's when God forces a nation to drink it and they stagger around in their drunken stupor and as they stagger they are ready for the sword of judgment to come upon them. So, It could be that the cup of God's wrath as well as a staggering nation uh, which has drunk of that cup, drunk it to the dregs and now we are right before destruction. That's that's a common Old Testament prophetic figure and that could be why the drunkards are called to weep and wail. Uh-huh, that. So, right. Uh, what do you think? <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, um, I agree. It's an Old Testament prophetic figure. I don't think these are literal drunkards being mentioned here, uh, but rather it's it's the audience to which the book is written to. It's the inhabitants of the land. <laughs> it's, it's Israel, or probably more specifically Judah. Um, they are called drunkards then, either because, as you said, they're drunk on the cup of wrath being poured out, or another reason they're called drunkards I kind of lean towards this idea that they are called drunkards because they had become drunk or satiated on the abundance of Yahweh's blessing upon their Mm -hmm. land and God gave them everything and in return they did not thank him or keep his word but became prideful, arrogant and went off into idolatry which is what the law of Moses said would happen if they didn't uh, keep in mind that they don't uh, man does not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God this Deuteronomy chapter 8 that you you don't get into this land Yahweh gives you and blesses you and has an abundance and then say I did this and it's mine and I want some more (laughs) no that's the wrong that's the wrong path and so they're satiated they're drunk on the abundance of Yahweh's blessing and then that blessing is going to be taken away because they did not uh, receive him or thank him properly uh What else do we have
0: here? Well, up next, uh, verse 6, a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth. It has the fangs of a lioness. Yes. So we have locusts being compared to, well, first a nation and then a lion. Why, Alex? Why are the locusts described like a nation and a lion? Well, okay, so the nation part, um, as we've been saying, I
1: think it refers back to the foreshadowing idea. The locusts, are a real-life warning. If if you think these locusts are bad, think how much worse it will be when an actual nation invades you. Which we know from history, it does eventually happen to both the northern Israel kingdom in 722 BC. Assyria comes in, wipes them out. But then also in 586 BC, Babylon comes in and destroys Judah and Jerusalem in the temple. Now, the lion's teeth that's pretty interesting because the lion was used as a symbol of power in the ancient near east i mean i guess it's still used as a symbol of power today but there was something called the lion of babylon that was especially important uh there was a statue that we found called uh, the lion of babylon that was built during the time of king nebuchadnezzar and so the lion even represented the king himself in his power and his reign there were paintings on the gates to the city of babylon of lions and so uh, that might be telegraphing here that the lions are going to be the babylonian army that will come in and destroy them except it won't be um they won't be small like these little locusts they'll be actual (laughs) an army so um
0: any thoughts there nick what do you think uh no right you are uh, and the only thing I'll do is uh kind of come alongside here and and just mention that that lions uh the, the the idea of the lion that's stock prophetic language that is intended to uh, also communicate ferocity in those uh, coming invaders so right right
1: <clears throat> well, Nick verse seven, we have a statement here that uh my vine has been wasted. Um. So I, th- I think it's Yahweh talking here then, my vine. What is Yahweh's vine, verse 7?
0: Again, literal reading versus figurative reading. Um, so a literal reading of this verse would be that the vineyards, the vines in the land, and uh, the, the vines of the vineyards themselves, they have been totally destroyed as a part of a literal locust invasion uh, and destruction of vines and vineyards. That's typical Old Testament. Uh, that's a typical Old Testament result of judgment upon a nation for their sin. You can see, for example, Jeremiah 8 and verse 13, where that same kind of thing happens. And again, an alternative reading, so looking at it through a, a figurative interpretive lens, would be to interpret yahweh's vine as the nation of Judah and and that's that sometimes happens in uh, prophetic literature for example Isaiah chapter 5 there the nation is symbolized as the vineyard of Yahweh yeah and so now he has laid waste his vine his vineyard and um, that's his strange work that he does as it's typified elsewhere in the prophets so mm-hmm. uh, a couple ways of looking at that what say
1: you Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of what we're going to see in Joel doesn't have to be um, literal versus figurative. Um, It can actually be both, and that provides an actually a deeper, I think, reading of the text. And so on the surface reading, you have vineyards, right? But um, we have other things, like you mentioned, Isaiah 5. Psalm 80 is a big one. Uh, It's a, a passage where God's people are spoken of as his vine. And it says that he took them as a shoot from Egypt, planted them in a rich land prepared by himself, and then the vine takes deep root and it spreads over the entire region, but then it begins to suffer, and the hedges are broken down, and wild animals begin to feed off of the vine, and then it's cut down and burned with fire. Again, these plagues, the locusts, the drought, uh, maybe wildfires, these foreshadowed perfectly what would happen to the people if they don't repent. And it was a it was a living object lesson for their current spiritual condition. So it's I think gotta be both and here. It's it's both what was literally happening and telegraphing the spiritual significance of what was literally happening. Any thoughts there, Nick?
0: A good connection to the Psalm eighty text, by the way. Yeah, Psalm
1: eighty's a big one. Go back and read that. It's real short. It's a good one. Verse 8, Nick, um, what significance is there in the bridegroom metaphor?
0: Yeah, so uh, verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Um, Yeah, bridegroom, um, wedding, all that's supposed to be joyous, supposed to be fun, and yet here we're called to lament uh, instead. And... uh, It it seems what this text is saying, that the the virgin who is to mourn is Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion. Right. And Old Testament prophetic literature typically describes the relationship between Yahweh and his people as that of a husband and wife. And uh, when Israel, Judah, when they go after idols and false gods, that they're committing adultery. Uh, So you get that kind of imagery uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament as well. And so, therefore, since judgment is coming upon the nation, the nation was to mourn. Or I guess you could also say, since judgment had come upon the nation with these locusts and more was coming. uh, The nation was to mourn, was to lament. Just again, depending upon how you... View of the book. So right, uh, right. Uh, what do you think? <clears throat>
1: yeah, I think I think that's right. The prophets often use the bride bridegroom metaphor for God and Israel. Uh, that theme continues in the New Testament as well. By the way, um, parable of the bridegroom.
0: Right.
1: Um, usually, it's Yahweh mourning over his adulterous bride, but here in Joel, the bride is told to mourn over the bridegroom. Mm. And I think the idea is that the people are to remember how good they had it before when Yahweh rescued them and when he blessed them in the land. But that is not their relationship anymore. And so they mourn as if they had lost their husband because Israel has been unfaithful. Another New Testament update, by the way, John the Baptist in John chapter 3, verse 29, he calls Jesus the bridegroom. And that's uh, extremely telling for Jesus' divinity because it's Yahweh who's the bridegroom in the Old Testament to come along and say Jesus is the bridegroom. Uh, that's uh, the same thing as saying that he is Yahweh. He is the visible Yahweh in the flesh. He's He's Yahweh become a man. All right, Nick, verse uh, 9, 13, right. 14. We mm-hmm. have the interesting question that you alluded to in the introduction. It talks about the priests. Offering sacrifice, being at the altar. So, which temple are we talking about then that the priests are ministering?
0: Right, the house of Yahweh. And again, there's uh, two options here, it seems. Uh, You got first temple or second temple. Uh, That is either the temple that Solomon built or the rebuilt post exilic temple of Zerubbabel. And again, the dating of the book would no doubt influence which temple you have in view here. Um, A pre-exilic date would have Solomon's temple in view, whereas a post-exilic view, you might have Zerubbabel's temple in view. Uh, And so uh, me taking a pre-exilic date for the book, I would think Solomon's temple, um, that's where these priests are ministering. What do you say?
1: Okay, well, I'll I'll take an exilic or post-exilic date, but I will also call this the first temple, the Temple of Solomon. (laughs) The plot thickens. (laughs) That was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 586 BC. And that's for the reasons I mentioned earlier about the way I see the outline of the book. You know, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 27 would be past events. um, And chapter 2, 28 through 321 would be the actual time of the writing where they are looking forward to future events and so and and again i think that because uh you have the option there if they if they don't repent verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2 this is what happened the invading army will come if you do though repent verses uh 12 through 27 this is what happened then yahweh will restore all that you had lost from the plagues and uh since they know then at the time of the writing via uh, chapter 228 to the end of the book that they did not repent. Babylon did come and destroy them. The invading army came. They were wiped out that uh, now they are looking for a future restoration. Um, So I'm I'm taking a both end. I'm exilic post exilic date, but I will say that this is the first temple we're looking at before it's destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Hmm. So uh, I'm going to have my cake and eat it too. (laughs) There you go. Well, Nick, a curious phrase here in verse 11. It talks about the farmers and the vine dressers being ashamed. Why would they be ashamed? What did they do?
0: So, yeah, the wheat, the barley, the harvest of the field has perished. Uh, This actually bleeds into verse 12 as well. The vine dries up, fig tree languishes. Right. Just everything's dying. Yes. So all of the major areas of the agricultural economy are going to be affected by the judgment that is brought upon the nation, the farmers, the um, uh, the vine dressers, and, um, I mean, you see, it, it goes on and on here. So uh, every major area just affected by that judgment. Um, that's, And I think that's why they're, they're to be ashamed, uh, is because it's their sin that has brought upon them this judgment. Uh, this blight. So uh, what do you say? So
1: I uh, I think the farmers and the vine dressers are the surface reading, just like earlier with the vine. I think the backdrop for this is the mourning of the priest, because there's no grain, there's no wine. Uh, I think you alluded to this, right? Which means there can be no offering of the first fruits, no drink offering at the table, no feast of weeks, which is what we call Pentecost. Uh, which means that there can be no denying that their covenant relationship with Yahweh has been, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's It's been compromised. There it is. Yahweh is the vine dresser of his people. That's a common theme in the Old Testament. New Testament as well, by the way. John chapter 15, um, 14, 15. Yahweh is the vine dresser of his people. But the elders, the priests, the other leaders, they were supposed to guide, to shepherd, to tend to God's flock, to God's people. They failed. They failed. And they are to be ashamed for the state in which they find themselves. And they're being consumed by plagues now. The farmers and the vine dressers, then, the way I'm leading, reading it is that uh, under the surface, that's actually they're representing the leaders of the people. Uh, Not that the farmers and vine dressers were actually the leaders, but they're actually representing the elders and the priests. That They failed in their spiritual responsibilities. And those spiritual responsibilities, uh, the failing of those are symbolized in the nation's agricultural woes. And so I'll forecast where I'm going with this in the next question as well. But the idea is that Israel, uh, the way I'm going to view it, is that Israel was God's new Eden. It was his garden. And his garden had been ruined again. That's what's happening. Uh, Any thoughts there, Nick?
0: No, I'm eager to hear what you
1: have to say about the (laughs) next question. (laughs) So verse 12 then, Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't call them Israelites or inhabitants of the land. It says that they are sons of men. And and so rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Why
0: are they called sons of men in verse 12? So uh, like the NIV, uh, other translations, they read mankind. So I'm going to go out on a limb here, and uh, gladness dries up from mankind. Yeah, And there is, um, I can't think of where it is now, but I believe, if I'm not mistaken, if I recall correctly, there's a place somewhere in the Old Testament where when God does his strange work and has to bring judgment upon the people that the nations of the earth see it and they mourn because if he does this with his own people, you know, what What do what chance do the other nations have? Something like that. And so uh, it could be that that's what's going on here, that the gladness of the nations evaporates because of what God is doing to his people. So, what do you think? Okay, interesting take. Um, so I'm gonna probably on. not as interesting as you're <laughs> just gonna. be. But.
1: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to connect what I forecasted in the previous question. Right, this God in a Garden of Eden motif here. So the earliest place that I could find where the phrase "sons of men" is used in the Old Testament would be at the Tower of Babel incident in Genesis chapter eleven, verse five. And that's where it says Yahweh comes down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. So why would Joel mention sons of men or humanity when clearly this is a reference to Israel? This is Israel's problem here. The plagues are upon them. And I think it's probably because Israel was supposed to be Yahweh's new creation. They were created at the exodus out of Egypt at the crossing of the Red Sea where God Split the waters. Uh, One of the Psalms says he crushed the heads of Leviathan, this language of subduing chaos like he did in Genesis 1. And then he plants Israel into this lush garden, the promised land, a land that he will go through and prepare himself. And it's going to give them an abundance of everything. Israel was supposed to be the new humanity through which God would work through to eventually bring back all the nations unto himself, all those sons of men. At Babel, God still accomplishes this through Jesus. And this uh, will connect to what we see in, in chapter 2, verse 28, and how that's quoted on the day of Pentecost. But the big idea here is that Israel was God's garden. It was a new kind of Eden. And this will be explicitly telegraphed in the next chapter, in chapter 2, verse 3, where Israel is going to be called like the Garden of Eden. And so this will carry through into the next chapter uh and through the rest of the book. So I'll keep riffing on it as we go along. Um it, what do you think that Nick, am I am I off the deep end here? What have I been smoking? <laughs>
0: well, of course you're off the deep end, but <laughs> No I think it's a good connection.
1: Um here's an interesting question. Verse thirteen yeah, and let following me ask it to you. Here yeah, we okay. go.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, right so you have here at the end of verse 13, it also shows up in verse um, 14 as well, talk about the house of your God, right? The house of your God. So what is the significance here? Uh, what significance is there to Yahweh being called your God? Yeah, it's a, it's a small phrase that easy, easy
1: to look over. But this idea, this phrasing, it is repeated quite often in Joel. It's in verse 13, 14, 16, chapter 2. It's in verse 13, 14, 17, 23, 26, 27, chapter 3. It's in verse 17. It's all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) So the backdrop for this, though, is the law of Moses, especially the book of Deuteronomy. You got this phrase, your God, popping up around 600 times in the Old Testament. But in the book of Deuteronomy alone, it's mentioned around 300 times that's huge that's huge mm. the idea is that yahweh he's the most high god and he is the singular god to which the israelites belong to they are his inheritance all the other nations they belong to other gods deuteronomy four nineteen through 20 yahweh allotted to all of mankind to worship the sun and the moon and the stars that's stock vocabulary by the way for the other gods Deuteronomy 32, verses 7 through 9, Yahweh divided mankind according to the number of the sons of God, or in the Septuagint, to the angels of God. These are the other gods. You can think of them as fallen angels, whatever, but these are other gods that are not Yahweh. They're created beings. They're not the most high God, but Israel, their God, is Yahweh. Israel is Yahweh's inheritance. It's his portion, and Israel is supposed to be separate from the rest of the nations. That's why Israel didn't even come from Babel. It came later on. Stole Abraham, made from him a new nation. Now, specifically, they are to, you know, first two commandments, stay away from those other gods, especially their rituals and their worship of those other gods. So the mentioning here of your God repeatedly in the book of Joel, it forecasts what the real problem is, which is no mystery at all. This is nothing mysterious. The real problem is Idolatry. It's the worship
0: of other gods. Um, Nick, thoughts? (laughs) No, I think that's right. It's a good connection to the Deuteronomy uh, book, because you're right. He does talk about your God in there a lot. Yahweh, your God. Um, I did stumble across, it it could be here, um, at least verse 13 in particular, where it's a call to the priests to minister at the altar, And what Joel is doing is he's making a distinction between himself and the priests. That is, he is not a priest, and yet they are ministers of my God. And so their ministry is in the house of your God. So he's calling them, he's saying, fulfill your duties. As leaders of Israel's religious exercises, fulfill your duties to your God. Right. So, Yeah, a lot of responsibility on the shoulders of the priesthood. That's right. Verses 13 and 14 then. Uh, There's a call to priests, there's a call to the elders. Uh, Why are the priests and the elders singled out among all the inhabitants of the land? Well, the priests and the elders are,
1: in my view, this is being written in the exilic or post-exilic time, the priests and the elders are the remaining leadership during the exile and post-exile, and therefore... When looking back on what led up to exile, they place the responsibility on the leadership that is still relevant to them at the time of the writing. The kings of Israel were, of course, often evil and complicit with rampant idolatry, but they have no more relevance after the exile. And so the failings of the priests and elders before the exile are the reminder that is needed to keep the current generation of priests and elders Uh, Sober while on the job. See how I played off of that drunkenness
0: theme there? Nice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, for what I see here, uh, in my English Standard Version, it reads this way. The middle of verse 14 says, Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. Mm -hmm. And I believe that is intended to recall verse 2. Right. where you have, you know, hear, O elders, and hearken, O all you inhabitants of the land. I think that's uh, uh, intended to recall that. You also have the priests in verse 13. They've been talked about earlier as well, verse 9 in particular. So, But this call to the elders and the inhabitants of the land is intended to provide, I think, closure to this uh, first major chunk of, um, of uh, uh, the book of Joel. At least this prophetic section; it anticipates the next section, which begins in verse fifteen. Alas for the day! So, oh yeah, kind of like a
1: literary, like bookends, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Good catch. Verse fifteen. Then, as we uh, enter into maybe a next section here of chapter one, how is the day of the Lord near? Then uh, to Joel's audience, or to uh, the event which he's referring to. What is it? When did it come? Why is it near?
0: Yeah, so uh, this verse appears nearly verbatim elsewhere in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 13, verse 6. Uh, and so one view holds, this is, uh, this is stock language, stock prophetic language when describing the coming judgment of Yahweh and it um, <clears throat> seems to have draw, uh, been utilized to describe not only impending judgment upon Judah, the nation of God but um, also especially here in Joel there's judgment that's coming upon the nations uh, that Yahweh is going to bring upon them for how they have treated and afflicted his people so um, that's that seems to be the, the the nearness of this thing. In one sense, it's already upon them, there's more that's to come, and in a broader sense, there's stuff that's coming for the nations as well. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with that line of thinking. Um,
1: the day of the Lord, I mean, it has to be contextually driven, right? And here it's called near, and so it's it's gotta be near because of the plagues that are upon them. And so, uh, it's near because if they don't repent, I mean, the day of the Lord is going to come when the foreign armies invades them and destroys them. And that and that does happen in 586 BC. That is how the day of the Lord is near in chapter 1, verse 15. However, the day of the Lord spoken of in chapter 2, verse 31, and chapter 3, verse 14 and following, it does seem to be a different day in mind because it's the judging of all the nations. And... Um, I think what goes along with that that we often forget is the judging of those nations' gods, of those spiritual rulers and powers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That day then, where the nations and their gods uh, are going to be judged, that seems to be end-of-the-world stuff. Um, If 2.28 is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, then it seems that 2.31 and chapter 3 would be stuff that happens after Acts chapter two, what do you think?
0: Hmm. I don't have a problem with that. No. <laughs> well we'll
1: keep thinking on it and then we got uh lots of time to revisit it next week <laughs> and the week after. <clears throat> well let's see, verse sixteen talks about food being cut off from God's house. Now that's that's weird. Um why doesn't it say sacrifice is being cut off from God's house? Why does it say
0: food, Nick? Well, um, it could be that perhaps this uh, this prophecy is intended to communicate to the heart. Kind of an argument from uh, Pathos here. And so <clears throat> focus is given to the uh, starvation of the people and even the animals uh, as well. Uh, and that is, that is emphasized perhaps over and against the cessation of worship. So... Um, And by the way, even when there's no food, even for the priests, the priests themselves are cut off uh, because that's how they they make their living is by the uh, offerings that come in and they get to keep some of those for themselves. So they stand emaciated as well with the people at large. Uh, What do you think? Yeah, I think that's the right trajectory. I mean, cattle, grain, sheep, these
1: are all necessary for worship at the temple. And yet all of those things were wasting away because of the plagues. Uh, The priests, they don't eat without sacrifice to share in. But also, continuing the theme of Israel as Yahweh's garden, Adam and Eve, they were placed in the Garden of Eden and given an abundance of food, right? Mm -hmm. So to mention food here instead of sacrifice could also be playing into the Eden imagery. And, sad to say, more vividly, uh, the imagery of the fall, uh I don't know can any thoughts
0: there, Nick? Have I sold you nope. yet? <laughs> <laughs> You'll sell me in two verse three for sure, but okay right. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah it, it seems yeah that's I think those are fair connections verse seventeen um this may you know may not be
1: very significant, but it just uh rubbed me the wrong way. It talks about how barns are gonna be torn down because there's mm. no grain. It's just like well why would they? Why would they tear down the barns
0: even if they had no grain? Nick, what do you think? Well, uh, the way I see it, you don't need barns if you don't have any grain. So I know. <laughs> uh, that's, that's my take. What do you think? Fair enough. Fair enough. But it, tearing down a barn
1: is a lot of work. I mean, for what purpose would you do that? Especially if you're uh, trying to save precious calories, right? You don't have food to eat anyway. I think the Dead Sea Scrolls words it uh, in a way that I like better. It says that the barns are broken down. Ah, I like that better because it it Mm. makes it sound like um, there's no need for maintenance on these barns. Uh, They don't hold anything. We don't have any hope that they're going to hold anything in the future. So why would we fix up the barn if we're never going to have grain again? We're just going to sit here and waste away and die. Um, I think maybe that's the, the... connecting disparities like it's not even worth fixing up the barn just let it fall down <laughs> maybe that's yeah, that's what's going on good catching the dead sea scrolls there yeah hey, there we go dead sea scrolls good stuff verse 18 nick um there are a lot of animals that i imagine would suffer from wildfires uh drought uh famine so here it focuses though just on cattle and sheep and why would they focus just on cattle and sheep instead of the other animals that would be suffering in verse 18?
0: Yeah, verse 18. The beasts groan, herds of cattle perplexed. Um, the end of it, even flocks of sheep suffer. So uh, the cattle, they, they could symbolize just the entire collapse of their agricultural economy. What's interesting about sheep, sheep are more hardy. They're more adept at surviving famine-type conditions. And so if even sheep are starving to death, the famine is extremely severe. So I think that may be uh, one of the connections there. What do you think? Yeah, I I think these are
1: critical animals for temple sacrifice. Hmm. Um, Agriculture was inextricably tied into their covenant. So when they can't eat, that also means when the people, when they can't eat, that also means that they can't worship which means that they are without excuse for whether or not they knew if they were right with God. They knew because their bellies told them had they worshiped Yahweh instead of their bellies and appetites, they wouldn't have been in this mess in the first place. Any thoughts, Nick?
0: Good connection to the temple there.
1: There we go. Verses 19 and 20. We're getting close here to the end. Um, We have a phrase repeated twice. The phrase is, fire has devoured the pastors of the wilderness. Why do you think that's mentioned twice, Nick?
0: Yeah. Um, So one of the things that repetition can do is it can add force. For example, Psalm 130, verse 6 talks about um, the watchman uh, longing for the morning, something like that. Um, And it, it repeats it twice at the end of that verse. Um, Here, fire is a common figure for divine judgment. And so Joel, deep in lamentation over uh, the judgment of God, he expresses that deep lamentation uh, over that uh, uh, judgment from God on the land, in particular with this fire. And so he, he, he repeats it. It adds some force, some weight to it. Um, I did try and find, it. sometimes when phrases uh, like this that uh, are the same or similar, uh, when they're separated by other phrases, uh, that uh, sometimes can lend itself to what's called a, uh, a chiasm. And that is, uh, you get like a structure like A, B, B, A, right? So line A corresponds to line A at the end, and then the two B lines correspond to one, one another. Um, that's that's typical for a chiasm. I don't see that here. At least I had, I struggled to find it. Yeah. Um, yep. uh, but uh, anyway, that sometimes that happens. It may not be here though. So, uh, what do you think? Yeah, I don't see the uh, chiasm here either. I
1: think you're right. Rep- repetition adds force. Um, so just kind of unpacking what would what would the force behind it be? Then I um, like what you said about fire playing a role in judgment. It's pretty common. In the uh, prophets, it will continue to play a role in Joel chapter 2. But yeah, stock language for judgment coming from God. I wanted to hone in a little bit on the phrase uh, wilderness and also pastors. So I think that if you were reading this, uh, the phrase wilderness would no doubt bring back memories of the Exodus, especially with the other things we talked about already in the chapter where Yahweh provided for them during their wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, Uh, pastures being then a place of rest for your flocks. That, again, is tied to strong imagery when describing God and Israel. Just think of Psalm 23, Yahweh is my shepherd. So, literal fire uh, ravaging the countryside may have been a reality after the locust plague and the drought, but wildfires uh they would need lightning and who holds the lightning bolt in his hand is it zeus is it baal no it's yahweh yahweh holds the lightning bolt in his hand and he sends it down in judgment upon the stubble of what once his was his garden his covenant people see i'm going to keep throwing the garden back in there (laughs) (laughs) but i think that's what the uh the pastures of the wildernesses, that's Yahweh's garden, his place of rest that he brought his people into, but now it's dried up, it's become kindling, and he's thrown the lightning bolt down to consume it. Uh, Nick, again, we have plagues of locust, drought, famine, wildfires, all through chapter 1. Are these actual plagues that happened, and if so, when did these things happen?
0: Well, I mean, as as we've uh, seen throughout this chapter, throughout the this whole prophecy, um, these could be literal events, could be figures of other things. If they're literal events, then they it was a literal locust plague, there was a drought, famine, wildfires, all that. Um, and when, well, uh, for me, the again probably a late pre-exilic date, right before everything collapses, five eighty six. Um, those things were happening, leading up to that event, and right. and That's they true. were having to endure them and live them. Right. Um, if they are figures, then for example, the fire it could it could be a symbol for the locusts. It could be descriptive of a, a drought, parching the land. All right, or or it could be if it's literal, it could be a fire. But. Uh, um, yeah, so that's, I mean, there's there's different ways of, of looking at that. Or it could be kind of your, uh, what, your and both thing, your cake and eat it too. That's but, right, that's right, both and. Um, yeah. That's what I'm going to go talk, with. Talk about it, yeah. Both and. I mean, the plagues were real.
1: Uh, but those real plagues, they were also living object lessons for the spiritual uh, condition that the people were in. It preceded, of course, a more severe version of these punishments that would be inflicted by invading armies, Uh, Armies which, in spiritual warfare talk, are ruled and empowered by other gods. And this would indicate that if that's what's happening, if these invading armies and their gods are going to wipe out God's people, that means that Yahweh is not with them anymore. He was, but he left. He's no longer shielding them in the heavenly realms from the evil gods of the nations I think that's the language of the hedges being broke down as we saw in Psalm 80 so the new creation that was begun in the exodus it would descend back into primordial chaos and such as in heaven so it is on earth and so what what would they hope for then they would hope for another new creation and I think that's chapter three, and I think it's fulfilled in the New Testament Church and Jesus Christ. So we'll have to wait for more on that. Any final thoughts, Nick? That's a dense chapter, man. It's so much. <laughs> it's so much. Yeah, to do this with chapter two, Nick. Chapter week. two is even more dense, and uh, the Septuagint is going to be the uh, wild card here that I think is going to throw throw some things really into high gear, but you'll have to wait till
0: next week. First, we must do a one-minute sermon, Nick. That's right. We're both preachers. We have hearts for preachers. We know Sunday's coming. So we are going to give you the good head start on a couple of sermons here. Uh, I've selected a song title. Alex has selected a song title. We don't know what the other has selected, but we're going to give them to one another, and then we each have to come up with our one minute sermon, we need a text, and also uh, the start of where to go with that sermon. So, song title from any genre. That's right. And so you go first, right? That's right, rolling up my sleeves. All right. (laughs) So, let's do this one. Uh, Your song, song title, should you choose to accept it? (laughs) From a little band called Slayer. Oh, wow. Uh, A metal band, Slayer, and their song, South of Heaven. (laughs) South of Heaven by Slayer. I'm not going to sing it. i got to save my vocal cords. That's (laughs) right. We'll leave it to the Cookie Monster.
1: (laughs) That's right. Do they have another song called
0: Rain Blood? They do, Raining Blood. Okay. Um, But this one is South of Heaven. South of Heaven. Here we go, one minute on the clock, on your mark, get set, and go.
1: All right, well, cosmic geography, here we go. You have heaven and earth and under the earth. And so north, from a cosmic perspective, is upward. It's where God reigns over all of creation. Uh, It's interesting, you look at the north star, and from our perspective, it doesn't move in the sky. Everything revolves around it. And uh, symbolically, cosmically, that would be God's throne, the earth being his footstool, All the heavenly hosts revolving around him. We are south of heaven. We're not in that realm with him. But there will come a day when we will be in the same realm together. There will be no north or south, but heaven and earth will be one. We will be with Yahweh and his heavenly entourage will be transformed to occupy that space with him. And that is the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the new creation in heaven and earth that we still look forward to even though we are new creation now in Christ Jesus. And so, south of heaven now, but later, we will be in the new heaven and earth with Yahweh. All right, one minute. Good job.
0: Second <laughs> uh, Peter chapter three, First <laughs> Corinthians fifteen. <laughs> yeah, you also snuck in there in the uh, the footstool thing. So that's right. Uh, what is it? That's a uh... Psalm nineteen. Is that it? Earth is somewhere the footstool. in there. Somewhere in the Psalms, yeah. someone has said. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, Nick, here is your song. You do not get to choose to accept or not. You must simply preach. <laughs> there was a blockbuster hit from 80s uh, superstar Fred Savage called The Wizard. It's about video games. It's amazing. 1989. And there's a song in there by a band called Real Life. And the song is called. Send me an angel. Send me an angel. Send me an angel. Right now. Okay, Nick, your turn. One-minute sermon. Send
0: me an angel. Go. Man, if only I thought the Apocrypha belonged in the Bible. (laughs) Go with Tobias, but... uh... (laughs) I'm going to have to go with uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 14, that uh, angels are ministering spirits sent to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. And that's the thing. That's, that's what angels are. I know we don't, we, we don't typically teach a lot on angels, but man, they're all over the Bible. And um, they are, they serve as ministering spirits, that, that uh, they can be dispatched from heaven on our behalf. I think also of uh, Daniel chapter 10, Mm -hmm. when Daniel had prayed, God sent him an angel, Uh, and he was delayed 21 days because he had to fight the prince of Persia, but when he got there, he said, hey, God heard your prayer, and I was dispatched immediately, but I had gotten hung up, had to call Michael for backup. So Daniel 10, Hebrews 1, send me an angel. There you go. Amen. Well done,
1: (laughs) sir. Come now as we stand and sing. (laughs) That's right. Send me an angel. Very good. Very good. (laughs) So. If you haven't seen the movie The Wizard, I recommend it. Fred Savage. Fred Savage. Classic. (laughs) Although you might be familiar with uh, his younger brother, Ben Savage, who was the star of Boy Meets World. That's right. So. Bringing back...
0: The nostalgic memories of my childhood. In the meantime, that's right. uh, You can find our podcast in a couple locations the Google Play Music Store, as well as the iTunes Store. Go in there, search Sword Play, and yeah, you can download all the episodes to your respective device and take it with you anywhere. Also, leave a review. That'll help us get the word out about the podcast, uh, share on social media, things like that. And if someone has a question, Alex, they can send it to swordplaypodcast
1: at gmail.com. swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your questions. Uh, We'd like to answer those for you. And uh, next time we will do Joel Chapter 2. We do thank you for tuning in to another episode of Swordplay.